BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, how do you keep winning elections despite embracing policies that work against the interests of your party's own voters? You lean into race-baiting, tribalism, and disinformation, according to political scientists Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, and you do the bidding of your moneyed elites, even as their demands become more extreme and actively undermine democracy. That's especially how the Republican Party has been able to maintain power in an age of soaring income inequality, Hacker and Pearson say. And for those, including conservatives, with disdain for this shift in direction, there are ways to fight back. They join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We often hear something to the effect of Donald Trump didn't create the divisions in America he exploited or is a manifestation of them. In their new book, Let Them Eat Tweets, How the Right Rules in an Age of Extreme Inequality, political scientists Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson look at what that means, what emerged in the decades before Trump that they call plutocratic populism. As Republicans sought to deliver for corporations and the super rich and still win elections, Pearson and Hacker write, Republicans, quote, reached ever deeper into parts of the nation and segments of the electorate where conservative economic policies failed to stir voters' passions, but divisive appeals to identity did. That bitter brew, they say, now threatens our democracy. Paul Pearson is a political science professor at UC Berkeley. Thanks for joining us, Paul Pearson. Really great to be with you, Mina. Also with us is Jacob Hacker, a political science professor and director of the Institution for Social and Policy Studies at Yale. Thanks as well to you, Jacob Hacker. Thanks for having me on. So Jacob Hacker, the book nods to this long pondered question of why people vote against their own interests, but it focuses less on the why and really looks at the how, how the Republican Party in particular has managed to get supporters to vote with them, even as they may basically harm them. And so how how has the GOP done this? Well, I think the basic answer is that they've figured out a set of identity-based appeals um, that allow them to attract uh, working class and other voters who are not that into the economic policies that they've chosen uh, to side with the plutocracy. and. You know, those have included uh, racially based appeals, but also uh, claims that um, rural America is being, you know, oppressed by urban America, uh, ideas about uh, gun ownership and its place in the in the American creed um, and evangelical Christian and conservative Christian ideals. And so it's basically been a very flexible set of appeals um, that have relied a lot on this idea that white Christian rural voters are under assault. Um, and it has required a kind of ramping up of that threat every electoral cycle. Yes, it's been described or you described it as outsourcing outrage. I mean, who, Paul Pearson, were they outsourcing this outrage to, like specific groups, surrogates, entities? Well, this is one of the big transformations that we talk about in the book is that political parties generally are, are not big on, on uh, ginning up outrage because they want to try to create big tents. They want to uh, have broad and sometimes kind of ambiguous appeals to lots of people. But what the Republican Party found was that it, as it shifted towards really protecting the economic interests of the very wealthy and major corporations, that they needed the help of groups that really specialized in, in ginning up outrage. Uh, and the ones that we talk about in the book are, first of all, the, the evangelical right uh, and uh, organized groups connected with it, the National Rifle Association, which in some ways is sort of the prototypical example of a group that uh, basically tries to 
terrify uh, its members as a way to, to mobilize them for the organization and in politics. Uh, and then finally, though it's not a sort of traditional uh, movement organization, uh, the rise of right-wing media, we think, is just fundamental to, uh, to the generation of this kind of outrage that the Republican Party became more and more reliant upon. But in many ways, uh, Jacob Hecker, you feel like this part of it has been pretty well documented, especially the part about the racist appeals, the white backlash, all of that. The part of it that you feel like is really less understood is this plutocratic part of it. Can you talk about how the Republican Party has aligned itself so closely with with this very small slice of the American population, this very wealthy part of the population? Well, you're right. Ever since the 2016 election, the, um, the focus has been overwhelmingly on the ways in which racism and racialized appeals have been used to attract white working class uh, voters. But um, the the fact is that the Republican Party uh, has had to adopt these kind of racist appeals because of a fundamental shift in the American political economy, um, which is un not just you know unusual relative to our our past, but unusual relative to other rich democracies. We have become uh, in the space of a generation the richest. Uh, I mean, sorry, the most unequal rich democracy in the world by by far, um, and. As a result, um, there's been a huge pressure on the Republican Party as the conservative party in the system to figure out how to simultaneously stay true to the business and conservative backers of the party who have gotten so much richer uh, while still maintaining their ability to attract voters who haven't shared in these huge gains. That's the, the, the fundamental dilemma that we call the conservative dilemma. And the Republicans, had a choice, we argue. Um, they had a choice of whether they wanted to kind of moderate and pursue sort of middle-class economic policies or whether they wanted to essentially double down in support of their, their most affluent uh, backers. And they basically chose plutocracy. And the result was then a kind of spiral of reliance on these outrage-generating groups uh, that Paul brought, uh, talked about. So the way we put it in the book is that Republicans embraced white identity so they could defend wealth inequality, that they essentially had to pursue a set of policies that ultimately led to undermining democracy because they were so committed to protecting the plutocracy, the, the richest of, of Americans and the kinds of organizations that they had created uh, to shape American politics. So basically you're saying as their alliance with the wealthy became more extreme, uh, they actually had to ha make their appeals more extreme, more their identity-based appeals more extreme as well and creating this sort of vicious cycle? That's right. And I'll just say that the, the fundamental fact is, is that the policies that the plutocrats demanded that the party produce, policies uh, ultimately like um, repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, uh, consistently uh, cutting taxes on the richest of Americans. Those policies are very, very unpopular, even unpopular among Republican voters. And so you can't, essentially, you, they can't run on the policies that they're pursuing to defend those at the top. How did this come to be? I mean, you know, when I think about this, it sort of conjures this idea of like, smoke-filled rooms and people who are, you know, sort of like this mastermind strategy that people are coming up with, you know, somewhere hidden in the shadows. But but how did this come to be? Like, when did essentially substantive concession making, you know, for it to benefit, you know, more people and, and particularly the average voters, when did that stop? And was this strategy something that was basically like laid out in a plan? Yeah, we want to be be very clear about that, that we're not arguing that there's some kind of grand conspiracy that there's, you know, that if you went inside some volcano, you'd find the hidden lair of the Bond villains uh, who are who are making this happen. Um, it's something that the Republic is something that evolved over time as uh, the Republican Party wrestled with the changes that were taking place uh, in the country. And we, we show in the book there 
there are some zigs and zags and there are efforts to push the party in other directions. Uh, the, I think the most significant episode that we recount in the book uh, was the battle for the Republican nomination in 2000 between John McCain uh, and George W. Bush, uh, where McCain really had a much more, he had this sort of moderate economic course that we described. He designed a budget plan that was geared towards providing truly middle-class tax cuts and uh, shoring up social security, which was something that the electorate was super interested in. Uh, Bush's policies were much more extreme on economic issues. He was the plutocrats candidate. Uh, and he ultimately, in, in part by, by really mobilizing evangelical voters, he defeated McCain in that primary uh, and continued to push the party in this more plutocratic populist direction. And so there have been a series of episodes. Uh, Newt Gingrich's role is super important to me. We could talk about that a little, little bit. Uh, but it's something where the party uh, has uh, ventured down this path, not without a lot of disagreement. Uh, but, uh, but as it's gone further and further down that path, the extremism of the plutocrats and the extremism of the populists have sort of reinforced each other. And do talk about Newt Gingrich's role, because I do think a lot of people remember him and how hostile he was and, and sort of the coarsening of political rhetoric. Well, we do think uh, the early 1990s is really a critical jun juncture in the evolution of the Republican Party, where um, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, w W's father, is in the White House and is actually charting a fairly moderate course, um, pursuing bipartisan legislation, uh, improving the Clean Air Act, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, and uh, he's willing to negotiate with Democrats and in fact agrees to tax increases on wealthy Americans in order to balance the budget. And Gingrich, who wants a much more polarizing politics, leads a rebellion among conservative Republicans against uh, a sitting Republican president. And, and he begins, and he's successful, uh, and becomes Speaker of the House uh, after the 1994 election, and really leads the Republican Party uh, down this path. And I think uh, it's important to recognize that we, we remember him as a bomb thrower, um, as somebody who aligned with people like Rush Limbaugh uh, and the NRA. Uh, but he was also... Um, uh, a big rainmaker. He really pushed an alliance along with Tom DeLay and some of his other allies. John Boehner was an important ally who later became a Speaker of the House, uh, a Republican Speaker of the House. All of them really pushed to tighten the alliance between the Republican Party uh, and big money with, uh, with groups like the, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and later groups like the Koch brothers. And Jacob Hacker, your book also basically suggests that at, at some point, Republicans kind of lost control, too, of the direction that the party was going in to some extent, like even as you were willing to bring in, you know, surrogates that were more extreme and essentially embrace what ultimately Newt Gingrich had, had started, that, that there was this sense that they were losing some control of it. Can you describe that and how they sort of have come out of that process? Well, one of the things that we were struck by as we looked at the Republican Party was the extent to which what they experienced was similar to some of the dynamics faced by conservative parties and other rich democracies at the very beginning of democracy when the franchise was expanding. Those, those conservative parties in Europe uh, a century ago basically had to figure out the same thing that Republicans had to figure out as inequality was rising, namely, how do you attract you know, ordinary voters when you want to defend the economic elite. And the, the side of it that became very clear to us, and we call this, again, the conservative dilemma, but the side of it that became very clear to us um, as we were looking at the contemporary Republican Party was this recurrent pattern of outsourcing outrage, um, where the party comes to rely on a set of surrogate groups that are really good uh, at ginning up outrage at the grassroots. They're really good at scaring people, so they go to the polls. But 
the problem for the parties that come to rely on these groups is that these groups have their own goals. As Paul said earlier, they're not centrist. They're not interested in building up a party that can attract swing voters. They're in it for extreme aims. They're in it for, in the case of contemporary right-wing media, which is a huge part of this, they're in it for big profits. And so what their, what their goal is essentially is to keep controversies going, uh, to fight to the bitter end, uh, even if they're out of off, even if they're the politicians they they are siding with are out of office, they can still prosper, um, and that's uh, unfortunately not a great thing for a party. So J John Boehner, who started with Newt Gingrich, became Speaker of the House. Uh, eventually, of course, steps down um, as Speaker in in disgust at the extreme groups that he that he's uh, being attacked by. Uh, Paul Ryan last a bit longer, but he also faces a lot of these pressures. And, and one of John Boehner's uh, aides, uh, his chief of staff says uh, uh, of this right-wing outrage machine, we fed the beast that ate us. And so Donald Trump is essentially a product of this outsourcing of outrage. He basically thrives in this, in this new environment of controversy that Republican elites are losing control of. We're talking with Jacob Hacker, political science professor and director of the Institution for Social and Policy Studies at Yale University. Also, Paul Pearson, a political science professor at UC Berkeley. They're co-authors of the new book, Let Them Eat Tweets, How the Right Rules in an Age of Extreme Inequality. And so have they basically made peace with this now, Paul Pearson? I mean, is there, you know, basically a tolerable alliance between the plutocrats and and these groups so that they can continue moving forward? And also, who are these plutocrats? You know, because we know a lot of uber wealthy here in the Bay Area who have very much championed, say, the very causes that, that the populist wing of the Republican Party are against. So, um, so let me let me take the second part of that first and just say that, of course, there are, you know, there are billionaires uh, who support the Democratic Party as well and uh, and play a very important role in shaping what goes on in that party. Uh, but as we document in the book, uh, the the lion's share of big money uh, goes uh, goes towards the Republican Party of, of spending and organization, particularly around economic issues, the, the issues that have become so central to this plutocratic agenda. That money is, is uh, the lion's share of it, you know, two thirds to 70% to of it is going, is going to the Republican Party. And of course, it's also true of the, the kind of organized activity of major corporations. So the US Chamber of Commerce, the most important uh, most powerful lobby in the United States has developed a very, very tight alliance uh, with with the Republican Party, and then you have the Koch brothers network and so on. So it's not that there aren't uh, wealthy people uh, on both sides, uh, but there's really an extreme imbalance there, especially when it comes to to shaping uh, economic priorities in the country. Um, now, I, I guess I would say at this point, you, maybe you could call it an unhappy marriage uh, between uh, the, <laughs> yeah. the plutocrats and the populists. I, I think we need to be careful in, in, in um, you could go too far in saying uh, that they've lost control, uh, that, that you know, they've been eaten by the beast that they created, or as uh, the now never Trumper David Fromm put it, you know, we used to think that Fox News worked for us, and then we found out that we worked for Fox News. Uh, there clearly has been that kind of dynamic, uh, but part of the reason why it's been possible is because uh, the wealthy and big corporations have made fantastically large policy gains uh, uh, under Republican leadership and under the leadership of Donald Trump. Um, Two trillion dollar tax cut in, in 2017, 80% uh, of the permanent benefits from that tax cut uh, went to the top 1% of the income distribution. You know, it's just an astonishing thing to think of a democratically elected government deciding at a time when there is nothing in public opinion that suggested that people were eager for tax cuts and certainly not for huge tax cuts for corporations and for wealthy Americans, that that's what the Republican Party did. Uh, two Supreme Court appointments that were um, greeted with rapture 
uh, in the organized uh, business community. Uh, massive deregulation as um, former lobbyists uh, and many people who had been connected with the Koch network uh, were placed in charge of critical uh, federal agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency. So it's not surprising that at the end of 2017, Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, the, the plutocrat's favorite politician in Washington described it as the best year for conservatives in the last 30 years on all fronts. Uh, and Charles Koch had a similar uh, ecstatic reaction to what was being accomplished under the Trump administration. So we, we shouldn't act as if, uh, as if the wealthy and uh, powerful corporations have simply been outflanked by, uh, by Trumpist populists. They've been very happy with most of the economic policies that have been pursued and continue to be pursued uh, by the administration and by Republicans in Congress. So this notion that, that Trump likes to put forward that he sort of slayed the, uh, the establishment isn't real. But, but Jacob Hacker, is this a long-term strategy? I mean, you talk about this, but demographic forces, wouldn't that uh, force a reckoning of this kind of alliance? Well, absolutely. And I think what, what one of the things we want to emphasize, and this was true, by the way, of uh, conservative parties a century ago, um, when they were trying to hold back the tide of, of newly enfranchised working class voters, is that this is a rearguard action, right? It's a race against time. And so not only are, are Republicans siding with the top 1% at a time when the vast majority of Americans feel as if their economic uh, livelihoods and security are under threat, but they're also uh, essentially doubling down on a strategy that relies on white working class voters um, at a time when those voters are a declining share of the electorate. So you see in, in California, of course, um, you know, the, the ways in which that can go south um, for, for the party. Um, but nationwide, because of the tilt of the Senate towards rural states, because of the way in which the Electoral College has reinforced that, and because of the degree to which the Republican Party has been very good at using its power um, to strengthen its electoral standing, stack the courts, um, lock in policy priorities, for all those reasons, the, the party has been able to kind of hold back this tide. But I think what we're seeing right now is the degree to which that dam is breaking. And the point we make in the book is that there, there, there is no majority electoral strategy that's going to rely on this kind of plutocratic populism. Um, you just can't combine, you know, hardcore uh, ethno-nationalist politics and policies that are deeply unpopular in a country that is revolting against both inequality and racism but what's going to give is is the question is 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 the republican party going to give is it going to have to moderate or is it going to lose dramatically or is our experiment in majority electoral democracy going to give hmm. and how much of an answer will we get Based on the results of the 2020 election, uh, so much more to talk about. We're talking with Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson about their new book, Let Them Eat Tweets, How the Right Rules in an Age of Extreme Inequality. And we want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What questions do you have for them? What are your thoughts on the agenda of today's GOP and the direction it's heading in? Call us 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with political scientists Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson about their fourth book together titled Let Them Eat Tweets, How the Right Rules in an Age of Extreme Inequality. They break down the GOP's strategy of aligning closely with wealthy elites who exacerbate inequality while drawing in populist voters through fear-mongering, race-baiting, and disinformation. And we invite you, our listeners, to join with your questions or comments. 866-733-6786 is the number. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And let me go straight to a call. Let's go to Jay in San Jose. Hi, Jay. Hi there. Hi, go right ahead. 
Okay, um, I just wanted to thank your guests for explaining to me what happened to what used to be my party. And also observe that this same concept of fear-mongering and, and using outrage to swing voters to accept things that really don't serve them long-term, I think applies whether you're spinning to the left or the right. For example, we just had a wonderful explanation of how the outrage against police brutality is turning people to support defunding police forces, and yet in Vallejo, it seems like defunding the police force maybe increased the amount of police brutality. And I also look at, at things like a lot of social programs that are criticized sometimes for creating dependency on the government and running up huge tax uh, budget deficits have a long-term effect that is really against the interests of the people who support them. Well, Jay, let, let me, me see... What either Jacob Hacker or Paul Pearson have to say, and, and I can let you, you know, decide who wants to take which questions from listeners. Jake, you want to go first? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I I'm really happy that Jay called in and and um, and offered that reflection as an as an erstwhile Republican. I I do think that. Uh, we, we were very pleased that we received a, a very positive review of the book in the Washington Post from uh, a, uh, a political uh, analyst who is, has been write, written about the demise of moderate republicanism, uh, Jeffrey Cabaservice. Um, and, you know, he, he, he said he really thinks that this is what's happened to the Republican Party, even though he, he also noted that there are divisions within the party over some of the issues we write about. And, you know that that's been a very encouraging development that there are republicans or former republicans who do not feel like the party feel like the party should have gotten off on some of the off ramps that we write about in the book you know one that i just want to mention uh is the 2013 um post um post romney defeat uh, autopsy it's often called the autopsy the report produced by the republican national committee in which the, the Republican leadership was pretty frank about the degree to which they really were losing uh, non-white voters and especially Hispanic voters. But of course, Donald Trump sort of threw the autopsy out the window and uh, regenerated and re-energized this kind of um, right-wing populist uh, backlash that the autopsy was hoping um, might be sidelined a bit. You know, one thing I will say um, that I think is I'm not going to engage with this question of, you know, whether outrage on the left has the same kinds of negative effects. I mean, I do think that um, to the extent uh, parties have to come to rely on a bunch of narrow surrogate groups that that gin up outrage, that's not a good thing. But I think the Democratic Party has actually been has a lot of pressures to move to the center that the Republican Party doesn't. We see that in the degree to which um, the Sanders and Warren uh, candidacies were ultimately, uh, you know, pushed aside by Biden's more centrist campaign. Um, but but I do want to say that I think it's really important over the long term that we have two parties that are vying for the broad center and that seek to govern responsibly. And so the book closes not by saying, you know, the Republican Party should be. Um, wiped out, um, but by saying that it needs to be reformed and replaced by a, uh, a more responsible version of the party, one that's closer to what it, it was before the Newt Gingrich uh, revolution in the 1990s that led to the contemporary uh, bitter brew of reactionary economic priorities and, um, and, and uh, you know, right-wing populist appeals. Well, one more point on this from Stephen, who writes, the polarization of the Democratic Party is also helping the Republicans as moderate Democrats have been driven out and lost their positions. But it sounds like, Jacob Hacker, you're disagreeing with that potential notion, though, Paul Pearson, I wonder if you want to weigh in on that point. Yeah, I, I would like to, actually. And I, I just I just have to say I don't want to take us too far astray, but I but I I do just want to signal that I don't accept Jay's earlier comment characterizing uh, what's happening on the on the left, and and particularly relating it to the um, the horrible police shooting that took place in in Vallejo recently. Um, 
but um, I, you know, I think there is a lot of evidence we provided in the book uh, that there are fundamental differences between the two parties yes. with respect uh, to these kinds of dynamics. Uh, and using the language of polarization, which is very common in these discussions, uh, it, it has the effect of making us think, oh, it's the same on both sides, uh, a plague on both your houses. Uh, but the evidence, I think, is quite clear that actually the differences between the parties in their vulnerability to this kind of extremism are profound, uh, for, in part for the reasons that Jacob mentioned. Uh, left of center media and the way in which left of center voters consume media is systematically different uh, than what happens on the right. Uh, that, now, that doesn't mean uh, that there aren't any of these kinds of forces uh, taking place on the left, and it's important to pay attention to them and, 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 and to monitor them because it, it can potentially be destabilizing. But there is just there is just a radical difference, and you can see it, you know, all you have to do is look uh, at the current presidential campaign uh, and, and contrast Donald Trump uh, with uh, Joe Biden, I think, just in terms of temperament and the kinds of appeals that they are making. Uh, and you can see that the idea that that both parties are equally to blame for this doesn't make much sense. Well, let me go next to John in Palo Alto. Hi, John. Well, hi. Um, it's a very interesting discussion, but um, I would like to uh, hear some commentary on how the Republican Party has shifted uh, over the years. I believe it goes back to Richard Nixon and the Southern strategy and his embrace of the evangelicals with an anti-abortion tack and also the plutocratic support of the Reagan administration in cutting environmental regulations and uh, tax cuts. So I think the roots of this pivot go back much further than this morning's discussions would indicate. John, thanks. You do talk about both of these things, Jacob Hacker, in your book, um, particularly Rick. <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, go right well, ahead. Well, Nixon, Nixon, we talk about, it's a really interesting, so we found this really interesting memo where Nixon basically um, in, um, after, after winning in 68, right, so as, uh, as he's um, approaching the, um, the, the next election, um, the that that he and his campaign were thinking a lot about how to appeal to blue collar what they call then blue collar workers and what's really fascinating is that they clearly recognized that the civil rights breakthroughs had created um a broad uh a, you know broad feelings of racial resentment and backlash that could be exploited but at the same time nixon wanted to combine that with very very left-leaning economic policies because he understood, as did the key um, people who were advising him, understood that labor unions were still strong, that business was so tied to the Republican Party, it didn't have a lot of independent power at the time because it didn't have a lot of uh, lobbyists um, or organizations, and perhaps most important, that, um, that these white working class you know, blue collar voters were really liberal, right? They liked the New Deal, they liked Social Security, they liked Medicare. So he pursued things like national health insurance, um, a guaranteed minimum income, uh, you know, wage and price controls. And, and so the point that we really wanna make is that it's not until the rise of, of extreme inequality that becomes transparent in the 1990s that you have this that you have the Republican Party essentially really embracing um, an agenda that is aligned with the plutocrats, um, you know, big tax cuts for the rich. And you know, Reagan starts that process, but it's not really until the '90s that you see it go throughout the entire party. And um, and that's when the kinds of Southern strategy, racial appeals, uh, become a central way of hiding uh, that that extreme economic agenda and and bringing vo voters who might who, who aren't supportive of that agenda uh, into the fold and if there's any figure 
who should deserve credit for this, it's Lee Atwater, the um, Republican political operative who designed the infamous Willie Horton ad of 1988. Mm -hmm. and, and in the book, and I encourage people to pick it up so I don't have to summarize this too much, but in the book, we talk about how Lee Atwater in, in 1983, before he was really known, wrote a memo in which he said, you know what, if we want to get so-called, you know, he called them populists. If we want to get these voters who are liberal on economics, but conservative on race and culture, we really have to figure out a set of, uh, uh, of appeals that exploit our advantages in the culture wars. And, and it was, he meant by that, not just, of course, evangelical conservative Christian appeals, which did not become a big part of the party, party's appeals until the 80s. Um, and, uh, and he meant race. Well, Craig writes, Reagan removed the fairness doctrine in the FCC bylaws that opened the door to Fox News and right-wing radio without legally requiring counter-arguments on air and in real time. It also allowed fake news to become a viable component of conservative and Republican politics. I don't understand why Presidents Clinton or Obama didn't restore this fairness doctrine. Kelly writes, can the guests elaborate on how important the 2012 national redistricting affected the rise of Republican power and just how critical who controls the upcoming national redistricting is? I mean, that's a big part of this as well, right? Uh, Paul Pearson, I mean, that voter suppression generally, I mean, how do those efforts play into trying to hang on to this, to your voters and win elections? Uh, in light of, you know, very unpopular policies? Well, it is, it is a striking uh, development. I'll just, I'll just mention, I mean, Craig's question about uh, and stick comment about the fairness doctrine, mm -hmm. I think is absolutely right, um, that that was a profound uh, change. And the, the rise of, I think it's, it would be hard to exaggerate uh, the contribution of right-wing media to the kind of uh, dynamic of, of outrage intensification that we describe. Uh, but the, the efforts to, to not just persuade voters, but to, uh, to change the electorate uh, or you know, change whose votes count and how much they count is a really, really, and, and of course, deeply troubling uh, part of this dynamic. And uh, so yes, gerrymandering, uh, is a significant part of this. And, and after 2010, Republicans make really considerable breakthroughs uh, there. That, that, and then that gives them an advantage in a lot of states, which they can then use uh, to make it more difficult for groups of voters who they think will not favor Republicans to gain access to the polls. You know, we see this in the incredible differences for different racial groups in just how long you have to wait to vote um, in, in a contested election. I mean, it's really... Re really shocking. Um, there's a, another important element of this that I think is maybe a little bit more subtle, but, but extremely important, which is the Republican Party has become a much more rurally based party mm -hmm. uh, as it has moved towards these kinds of appeals. And it just so happens that the American political system sort of systematically uh, overweights uh, the votes of uh, those living in rural areas. Uh, that's actually now true in the House. You know, I, I live in the Bay Area. You know, there are lots of districts around here that um, that give 80 or 90 percent of their votes to Democratic candidates, but that's not very efficient in terms of uh, maximizing the number of seats that you're going to get um, nationwide. And Republican voters are more spread out, more efficiently distributed, so that even if a minority of the country in the House votes for Republican candidates, you can often end up with a Republican majority uh, in the House. And of course, the Senate is much, much more extreme version of this. Uh, and, it, and it also carries over to the, to the Electoral College, which is part of the reason why, even though Democrats have actually won the popular vote in six out of the last uh, seven presidential elections, uh, they only won four of those seven elections. And somehow, even though Democrats have won six out of the last seven presidential elections in the popular vote, uh, Republicans have a majority on the, the very, very powerful uh, US Supreme Court. Uh, so, um, so it's partly about uh, rigging in various ways as we describe, but it's also about the kind of unintended ways in which um, the, the rural edge in the American institutional setup uh, has given a particular political party a big advantage. 
And, and given that, and I should just remind listeners, Paul Pearson is a political science professor at UC Berkeley, Jacob Hacker, a political science professor and director of the Institution for Social and Policy Studies at Yale. They're co-authors of Let Them Eat Tweets, but also their other books include American Amnesia and Winner Take, On, Winner Take All Politics. And, and so, Paul Pearson, given that, that these are fundamental parts of our, you know, democratic institutions, right, like how you apportion seats, things like that, I mean... There are a lot of listeners now who are asking, so what do we do? I mean, Larry writes, what are the long-term prospects for maintaining this Republican Party strategy? It resembles the Democratic Party's dilemma and the civil rights struggle to hold on to the Democratic South. Lyndon Johnson knew that the civil rights legislation was going to lose the South, and it did. George Wallace won five southern states in 1968. Ken writes, how can plutocratic populism best be defeated? It sounds like you think democratic cha demographic change will eventually defeat this right-wing movement, but what if it reconfigures and comes back stronger? Money will not go down without a fight. And finally, Lewis writes, how do we fix this extreme inequality and plutocracy? Do we need a Teddy Roosevelt type of president? Is Biden that president. So uh, uh, Jacob Hacker, I don't know if you want to go first, just talking about, okay, what can be done? Because honestly, your your book is both, concludes both on a optimistic, but very sobering note as yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, first of all, those are wonderful comments and they capture, uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, we do not believe there's any one magic bullet solution. Um, if there were, you know, I think, Everyone would, uh, who's concerned about these trends would be, um, you know, uh, shouting about it to the rooftops. But we do think that that the the fundamental role of of inequality and plutocracy uh, are are too often neglected, and that if we don't address that sort of deep source of um, of these of this um, radicalized Republican Party, then it's going to be really hard for us to bring back. Um, a strong democracy. And, and that's partly because, you know, I, just to go back to something that Paul said earlier, we do think both parties get um, affected by the role of money in politics. And so the good news, I think, is exactly what you said, that the, the demographic changes are going to put the Republican Party under a lot of pressure. And if we can hold on to free and fair elections in the meantime, um, and we're very concerned about that, um, the party is gonna be pressured to moderate um, less than it would be if it wasn't advantaged by all these features of the constitution we write about, less than it would be if it didn't have that majority on the Supreme Court, um, but it's going to be pressured. You know, um, Lindsey Graham had the best line on this. He said, we're not generating enough angry white guys to stay in business for the long term. <laughs> Um, now, they seem to be doing pretty good at getting angry white guys angrier, but the fact is, is that they, you know, we're seeing in Arizona, we've seen in California, we're even seeing in states like Texas that this strategy has its limits. But, um, but if we don't address the kind of underlying cause, if we don't figure out how to reduce the sway of money in politics, uh, if we don't um, uh, act to try to address our extreme inequality, um, we are at a moment where you know, for the first time in my lifetime, you know, raising taxes on the very affluent and using that to fund popular programs is a majority position, a, an overwhelming majority position. Um, and, and that's something that I think is, is encouraging. If you look uh, at the, the current debate, the things that Republicans have been advocating, and particularly Donald Trump has been advocating, these things are not popular. Meanwhile, the things that, um, that, that Democrats have been calling for, um, even some of the things that we consider, you know, pretty, pretty, you know, towards the you know, left side of the center left, those things are very popular. And so, and that's, that's a really remarkable development. I think we should take that um, as a sign that if we can, if we can keep reforming our democracy to, to allow it to be responsive to majority sentiment, um, that we that the long term trajectory is positive. Well, Paul Pearson, I don't know if you wanted to also weigh in on what can be done. But I also wanted to ask you about, I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that you probably lean toward progressive <laughs> politics. But but do you want a I better guess. form of conservatism? <laughs> um, and if so, what does that look like? I mean, I, I think either you or, or Jacob earlier mentioned reform and replace the party, but, but you know, what is the future that you would like to see in terms of a conservative movement? 
Well, my my crystal ball is is foggy. Um, actually, after 2016, I, I threw it away. But um, but I we do talk about this at at some length in the conclusion of the book. Let me I'll just say you know one thing about the challenges of reform. I will say is that I do think um, if if we have an administration and a Congress that is interested in pursuing uh, reforms after November, that political reform needs to be um, at the top of the agenda uh, because uh, there are such profound inequities uh, that have developed in the system. Um, and I just add one that we haven't talked about before. The Senate filibuster, which allows a tiny fraction of the population uh, in uh, in smaller states to potentially block uh, let any legislation, any reform legislation from passing. Uh, I, th I think Democrats would have to really seriously look uh, at something uh, to, um, because again, that's not part of the constitution. It's just a rule mm -hmm. that the Senate uh, developed. It's already uh, been uh, diminished, you know, no longer applies to court appointees or to, or, or to cabinet appointments or other executive appointments. Uh, and, and it's just a huge barrier to enacting reforms that are that are supported by an overwhelming majority of Americans. So that that needs to be a priority. Uh, but we do, as, as Jacob said before, um, we do uh, look towards the ideas of rehabilitating a conservative party because we we recognize that in, in the United States, the way the system is designed, there are going to be two major political parties. Uh, that's been the case essentially uh, from the from the beginning uh, for for good reason, uh, and that one of those parties is going to be more conservative. And the question is whether or not it's going to be a healthy participant in governance um, and in responding to the felt needs of American citizens. Uh, and we we are both worried about that based on what we write in the book. Uh, but we also do see real hope of an important change taking place because it is true, as Jacob said, um, that the constituencies for, uh, for Republican politics today are in demographic decline. It does look like what California looked like uh, 25 years ago. And we've seen how that's played out uh, in California. Uh, you know, but we think, we think at a national level, that a Republican Party placed in that position would eventually be forced to adapt um, and to moderate on economic issues and find new, new ways of convincing ordinary Americans to support them, uh, but ways that are healthier than what's been going on in Amer American politics over the last couple of decades. Well, let me go now to Carol in San Francisco. Hi, Carol, join us. Yes, yeah, so well, I wanted to find out about uh, immigration and how the um, Republican Party is uh, sort of pitching it to uh, people who are loyal to the Republicans and are Republicans and are in favor of, of President Trump because a friend of mine told me that he's done a lot to uh, prevent immigrants from uh, receiving very easily and quickly all the uh, social programs that our country are giving and they can bring their relatives to do the same from other countries. Thank you. Carol, thanks. Jacob Hacker, I don't know if you want to comment on Carol's point about the use of immigrant or anti-immigrant rhetoric. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think there's a tendency, especially right now, to see the, the racial politics before us as solely one of black and white. Um, but in fact, um, the, the Republicans have also embraced a kind of anti-immigrant, uh, anti-Hispanic, um, uh, set of appeals that have that has that have been very very effective, um, and Trump of course used those um, as well. And you know what? There's a lot of political science research on this, and it shows that there's a kind of in, almost instinctive response that 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 people have when their group uh, is in. Is under is they perceive their group to be under threat, and demographic change can trigger that response. There's a wonderful paper by my colleague at Yale, Jen Richeson, that shows that just telling people that telling white people that the country will become 
uh, majority minority in the next generation uh, makes them more conservative across the board, more likely to support Republicans, more supportive of anti-immigration policies, and more supportive of tax cuts for that matter. Um, but, um, but she also points out that if you tell them that you shouldn't be worried about this, that it's not gonna change the power of white people, um, that, um, that people uh, in these experiments actually return to their earlier positions. And so it's really important that how people perceive how this anti-immigrant sentiment that we see at the grassroots level has really been shaped by these uh, by the Republican leaders and by these surrogate groups we write about, like um, evangelical Christian groups and the NRA. And so if we can get to a, a better politics, as Paul was saying, I do think we can have a, a, a better debate about issues like immigration, where there is actually surprisingly broad agreement on certain key principles. The last thing I'll say here is just that, you know, Paul said we need a, a party a Republican Party that moderates on economics, that reaches out uh, to ordinary citizens on economics. And I agree with that. But we also need a, a multiracial Republican Party. Um, and if, if, if that emerges, I do think that we'll see uh, a, much, a much stronger two-party system in the United States, a more democratic one. I know this book was written before the pandemic, but that's the one thing we haven't talked about. And we just have 30 seconds or so. But Paul Pearson, I mean, what role do you think the pandemic plays in terms of pressure on the GOP, whether it helps or hurts them? Well, I don't think there's any question that it hurts them. Um, you know, I think the the failure of the administration um, and um, supported in many ways by Republicans in Congress uh, and and by a lot of Republican governors in, in southern and southwestern states, um, that just exacerbated uh, all the kinds of tensions and, and the unpopularity that we've been talking about. Well, the book is Let Them Eat Tweets. Paul Pearson of UC Berkeley, Jacob Hacker of Yale. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Really appreciate hearing your insights today. And also thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. Ariana Prail produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.